Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, a look back 105 years to one of the biggest labor disputes in American history, the Bisbee deportation. In the summer of 1917, unionization was the talk in many mining communities in Arizona. Members of the Industrial Workers of the World, also known as the IWW or the Wobblies, had arrived in the state and began organizing strikes at some mines. By July 12th, mine company executives came up with a plan to break unionization attempts that culminated in an historic event known as the Bisbee Deportation. Anti-union activists rounded up 2,000 pro-union miners and sympathizers and told them to renounce their efforts or be sent out of town on a train. But that wasn't the first time that summer that union supporters were thrown out of an Arizona mining community. Zach Ziegler takes us to a small town in Yavapai County that some historians say was the test run for the Bisbee deportation. It's hard to get a better view of Jerome, Arizona than the one offered from the Jerome State Historical Park. It sits in an ornate building on a hill just north of the town, near the head frame of the underground mine that produced tons of copper, silver, and gold ore. And when you look at the building's history, its location and grandeur make sense. This is the Douglas Mansion as we know it locally. Henry Vincent is a volunteer at the museum who gives tours and talks about the area's history. He was born and raised in Jerome. This building was built by Rawhide Jimmy Douglas. It came into service about 1917, and Rawhide Jimmy Douglas was one of the original organizers of Jerome's second most important mine. This mine is known as the United Verde Extension Copper Company, and Rawhide Jimmy Douglas was the president of UVX during its operation from 1912 until 1938. The year this mansion came into service was a good one for copper companies. America had entered World War I, leading to increased demand for bullets and military hardware, both of which utilized plenty of copper. And rural electrification efforts also increased demand for copper wire. The result? The price had doubled in about a decade. But while it was boom times for the companies, Jerome Historical Society's Jay Kinsella says the work life of a miner was quite different. 12 hours a day, six days a week, minimal pay, hazards, underground, a lot of accidents. And, as Henry Vincent says, it wasn't easy work either. A lot of the work that went on underground, um, there was certainly mechanization as that became increasingly popular, but there was a tremendous number of ore buckets that were loaded with a shovel. Once you were off work, housing conditions were less than ideal thanks to those low wages and life in a boom town. This place was packed. It's one square mile, and it had 15,000 residents. That's about the population density of modern-day Chicago. To compare, Jerome today has about 500 residents. The residents were stacked like cordwood on top of each other. Many miners' rooms were double bunked, where the one miner would be working, the other would be sleeping. Um, residential quarters were very, very small and, and very, very dense. And, and, and there was a tremendous amount of people here in a very small area. This confluence of events led to the miners talking about how they could better their conditions. 
word got out amongst the mining industry throughout the Southwest that the Jerome personnel, the miners, weren't happy with the working conditions. They stated their grievances to the mining companies, but it fell on deaf ears. So there was a lot more talking amongst the miners quietly because they needed to make sure that they were still working for the mining company to, you know, pay the bills. Their demands? Six hours a day for all men underground, a minimum of $6 a day for all men underground, and $5.50 a day for people above ground. If you use the Bureau of Labor Statistics inflation calculator, that's almost $140 a day in today's dollars. Since they worked six days a week, that would be the current equivalent of about $43,000 a year. Today, the average wage for an Arizonan in the natural resources and mining sector is around $61,000 a year. Other things were two men on all the pistons and, and liner machines. That's their technical term. They're also known in the mining industry as widowmakers. A widowmaker was a pneumatic power drill that would bore a small shaft into the rock. Once the shaft got deep enough, sometimes up to six feet deep, they'd pack it with dynamite and blast loose rock. The drills were dangerous when run by two miners, but when run by one, Kinsella says they were the leading cause of injury in the mine. The miners were also thinking about equality amongst their fellow workers. The other concern that they had was to abolish the sliding scale. And the sliding scale had a lot to do with the color of your skin. There's no gray area in that at all. On July 7, 1917, one of the town's newspapers, the Jerome Daily News, reported that a group of miners gathered to consider a strike. And the result was 471 votes against a strike and 194 in favor of the strike. Kinsella says that more than two to one vote against was quite a blow to the morale of the people who were ready to strike. And so subsequently, um, the 194 that were in favor, that started out in favor of the strike, really started to become boisterous. Members of the Industrial Workers of the World, or the IWW, had arrived in town and were helping the miners who wanted a strike to hold one. The mining company uh, executives saw the handwriting on the wall. They did what they could but they needed to be, back then, as politically correct as they could possibly be. So instead of trying to break the strike themselves or hiring someone to break it for them, as other industries did, they riled up the anti-union workers and residents of Jerome. The night of July 9th, people who didn't want the mine to shut down were armed. They were supplied shovels, axe handles, all sorts of different things. In our archives, we have... um, lines of the vigilantes on Main Street, confrontation with the Wobblies and the striking miners, they went to blows. The next morning, that group of about 250 men reported for what? According to historian John Lindquist in a 1969 article, they called cleanup duty. All hell broke out. There was um, um, face-to-face confrontations, violence, beatings on both sides. Linquist writes that they started at 6 o'clock in the morning and rounded up about 100 men by 9.30 that morning. A number of them were released, but between 63 and 67 were loaded into four cattle cars that had shown up on a mine-owned rail line near the mine. But as far as the mine was concerned, 
it had an ability to separate itself from the events. The only thing that the mining company did um, acknowledge is that they brought in four cattle cars into the town of Jerome. Plus, there was an added layer of distance from the men who owned the mining companies. Senator Clark out of Butte, Montana, Jimmy Rawhide Douglas out of Quebec, Canada. They had personnel here. They weren't here all the time because they, they had holdings in other areas. But I tell you, they knew exactly what was happening in Jerome, even though they weren't here. Again, here's Henry Vincent. That was kind of the tone of how you met labor organization in those days, and I'm not saying it was right, um, but the, the original dry run of kicking the Wobblies out of town came here in Jerome, where they were loaded onto cattle cars and shipped out. The train eventually stopped in Needles, California, but the locals didn't want unionizers there. Vincent says they ended up in Kingman largely, though Kinsilla says some ended up as far as New Mexico. Both men distill the Jerome deportation ultimately down to concern for self and concern for community. Jay Kinsilla. It basically boiled down to um, a concern that the miners had, a concern that the mining company officials had, and the worst of times to wages concern, which was the start of World War I. That was Buzz producer Zach Ziegler reporting. Coming up after the break, what happened a few days later and a few hundred miles to the south? You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week we're traveling back to an historic labor dispute 105 years in Arizona's past that ended with Copper Company supporters rounding up pro-union Arizonans and forcing them out of the state. Days after the deportation in Jerome, mining company Phelps Dodge was again dealing with miners who were displeased with their working conditions and threatening a strike. They saw the action taken by other Phelps Dodge employees to the north as a possible plan of action to break the labor organization movement. Charles Bethia was born and raised in Bisbee. He's a local historian who moved back to the area later in life. We met him at the site where the pro-union Bisbee miners were rounded up, Warren Ballpark, which is named for the neighborhood where it stands. Warren was a community that was built by one of the um, um, competing mining companies, the Calumet in Arizona Mining Company. And so uh, this, was a, this was a place where people gathered. On Ju July the 12th, 1917, when the deportation took place, the, the, the deportees, the ones that were arrested and rounded up, starting in Upper Old Bisbee, were marched here four miles from downtown Bisbee, and they were staged in this park where we are, we are right now. Bethia says that there were similarities between Jerome and Bisbee from the start. Both started early in the morning, Jerome at 6 and Bisbee at 6.30. Both had roughly one-to-one -one ratios of anti-union and pro-union people involved. The difference is the scale. The Bisbee deportation was about 10 times the size of Jerome's. There were about 2,000 deputies, temporary deputies, and vigilantes to round up 2,000 people. It was a one-on-one -on -one operation. The action in Bisbee was also notably more official. The most active one involved was John C. Greenway, who was the head of Calumet in Arizona. John Greenway had been a rough rider with Theodore Roosevelt in Cuba. He has a big history, you know, 
And uh, he was pleading with these guys, come on, you know, just give it up and you can go back to work and this will be over with. And and some did. I mean, obviously they had about 2,000 people rounded up and they ended up with around 1,200 or a few less that they actually dealt with when the three hours later when the trains were loaded up. The head of Bisbee's other mine company, Walter Douglas, whose father, Rawhide Jimmy Douglas, owned one of the mines in Jerome, was not seen that morning. But Bethia says it's hard to believe that Douglas wasn't involved. The 11th of July, he was in Globe, Miami, where they were dealing with mining issues, too. He had a private railroad car. Of course he did. And so he, he came into town sometime on the 11th. Uh, there's a lot of disagreement about that. Some people say he was never here, but all the information that I can find says that he was here, but he was really keeping low. While there's debate over whether Walter Douglas Sr. was in Bisbee that day, his son, Walter Douglas Jr., who spent summers with his father in Bisbee, was there. He recounted what he saw during a 1974 interview for an oral history housed at the Bisbee Mining and Historical Museum. He said his governess took the children upstairs to watch what was happening. And we watched them, the uh, wildies being driven down Bisbee Road to the old ballpark. And I remember that very well. We thought first that it looked like a cattle drive, but because there were cowboys on horseback on both sides of them, so they couldn't get away and drove them in there. It uh, was quite a sight, and there must have been People were deputized, and the Cochise County Sheriff, John Wheeler, was overseeing operations. He was running back and forth all morning as they were marching these guys down. He was in a car. He borrowed the car from the Catholic priest up at the Catholic Church, who was a supporter of the deportation. While in that car, the sheriff was carrying a belt-fed machine gun, and others were also armed with guns. So I think I should go back a little and explain why so many armed with rifles that morning. That was Walter Brockbank during a 1971 interview that comes from the Bisbee Mining and Historical Museum oral history collection. You may remember that just prior to this country entering the war in Europe, a Mexican bandit by the name of Pancho Villa had made a raid into the United States near Columbus, New Mexico. Well, at that time, there was very little military protection along the border. So many towns along the border fearing other such raids began to organize home guard units, which we did here in Bisbee, having three companies of about 300 men each. Those groups were able to get surplus guns and ammunition from the Spanish-American War. I had better say that it was not the organized home guard that conducted the round of sympathizers, strikers, but by citizen groups that thought it was their duty to restore peace and order in the community, and to give all the support possible to our armed forces in Europe. Brockbank emphasized that he wasn't a part of either side, mostly because he worked in one of the mine's mechanical departments, as did Dan Kitchell, whose interview also appears in the collection. I didn't oppose them. They didn't oppose me. The engineers and the pumpers were left alone. We were not in this thing at all, because if we were out, why the mines would close and flood. But this deportation was the most deplorable thing that ever happened in the United States. And I saw the march down to the, to the uh, ballpark. On top of the ballpark was a machine gun. 
And Kitchell said on top of that, they had cut off communications with the outside world. I asked the uh, Jimmy McDonald, who was a deputy United States Marshal, I said, what's this all about? He said, I don't know. He says, I can't get word from my office. The wires are cut. Charles Bethia told us it's not surprising that the flow of information was cut off by the mines. They owned the hotel. The telephone switchboard was in the hotel. And on the morning of the deportation, they shut it down. First of all, the, the phone operators were busy calling, sending out these coded messages to people in Douglas. It's going to start, come on up, because we had people from Douglas helping out with that. And so, you know, nobody could make a phone call. Uh, uh, nobody could send a telegram from the telegraph office down right down in the middle of Bisbee for hours. Since the anti-union side was so well prepared and made such a show of force, most of the union side didn't have much choice but to go along, with one notable exception. Two people did die that day, and that was during the, the pickup. Uh, and one of the deputies, who was actually an employee of Calumet in Arizona, a man named Orson McCray, and he went to this boarding house in Jiggerville. Jiggerville is one of three neighborhoods that sat where the open pit lavender mine is today. And there was a man named James Brew who was a striker. He was sick, actually. He wasn't even well. He was in bed. And so when they came to get him out, when Orson McRae went up to the door, he said, we're coming in to get you. And he said, anybody tries to take me, I will shoot him. McRae or his men went to the screen door of this room. It was on a porch. And Bruce shot through the door and killed McRae. So the others just opened up on the guy. That's the general story. It's an era when mine strikes could be met with deadly force. In 1913 and 14, the Colorado Coalfield War erupted out of an attempt to break a strike. When it was over, as many as 200 people were dead. So Phelps Dodge and the Cochise County Sheriff armed and brought in as many people as possible. Yeah, the sheriff deputized me. Deputized a whole bunch, you know. That's from a 1981 interview with Herman Adams from the Bisbee Mining and Historical Museum's oral history collection. He was among the men who rounded up strikers that day. The train was already there. It was about 14 cargoes. Opened the doors and put out the plank. They walked up in there and they locked the door. Got them all in there, the train left. But not all of the 2,000 men rounded up ended up on the train. More than 800 were allowed to return to work. Charles Bethia says at least one was among the people considered a sympathizer. The one that is most uh, prevalent or predominant in our, in our history here is the story of, of Mike Pentec, who owned a store in Bakerville, which is just up towards the, uh, as you get up toward the traffic circle. And he also ran a taxi service. Mike had tuberculosis, so he wouldn't have been able to work anyway. As they were coming by, they grabbed him because he was known to be sympathetic to the movement, to the men who worked there. Katie Pentec, his wife, she went to Dr. Nelson Bledsoe, who was the chief surgeon at the Calumet Hospital up there, who was carrying weapons and had cartridge belts. I mean, he looked like he was ready to go to war. She was eventually successful in convincing the men not to load her husband on the train. 
But when they got home, their neighbors began threatening. And they said, we're going to get you. We're going to get you. I mean, they weren't letting him go, despite the fact that he was questionably involved. So he snuck off to Mexico for a week, kind of hiding out, left Katie and their young kids here. And she was watched constantly. She was followed where she went. There's an interview with her that was done in the 70s when she was quite old. And uh, she talks about that, you know. And uh, so anyway, Mike came back up. And when he did, they hauled him before the kangaroo court. So they said, you know, you better just uh, watch out for yourself. So he went back to Mexico for another month or so. Pintech died a few years later of tuberculosis. His son's obituary calls it minor's consumption. That son, John, seems to have been shaped by the 1917 events. He went to law school and became the youngest county attorney in Arizona history. He was 25 at the time. After serving in the Army during World War II, John Pintech went into private practice. His obituary calls him a fighter for social justice, including minors' rights and benefits for minors' widows and children. And the family legacy doesn't end there. John F. Pintech was the Cochise County Sheriff for one term starting in 1993. The Pintechs were fortunate in that their patriarch was able to return home eventually. That was not the case for many families. Bethia says many of the men were eventually allowed back, but only to pick up their families and property. Some of the women, we know this, they actually divorced the husbands who they loved in order to be able to survive because they'd have to marry somebody else. The train left at about 11.30 that morning, heading east. There was an attempt made to drop them off in Columbus. Mike Anderson is an historian who lives in Bisbee and who has spent the last few years studying what happened after the deportation. And when the train got there about 9 o'clock at night, the Columbus authorities were waiting, and they informed the train crew and the vigilantes that this is New Mexico, you're from Arizona, Whatever authority you had to do this in Arizona, you have none in New Mexico. You need to take this train back to Arizona immediately, and if you don't, we're going to arrest all of you for kidnapping. So they backed it up 20 miles to a siding called Hermanas, uncoupled the 23 cattle cars, and just left them there. Word eventually made its way to the White House, where President Woodrow Wilson had the men brought to an army camp near Columbus. Once the men were settled in Columbus, Obviously, they wanted to get back, and that was one of their goals. The other goal was to seek justice because it was it was a criminal act. It was a kidnapping. And there were a number of these men that immediately wanted to see that those who kidnapped him were brought to justice. Anderson says the men filed kidnapping charges against those involved, hundreds of them. How do you process um, hundreds and hundreds of kidnapping trials? So the Cochise County attorney decided, we'll try one man, Harry Wooten, hardware store salesman. If a jury convicts him, we'll start in on the others. There were months of pretrial motions and deliberations, then came a lengthy trial. But in the end... Harry Wooten was found not guilty. The justification that the prosecution gave was that it was the law of necessity that the vigilantes were operating under. Now... I challenge you to find in the Arizona Revised Statutes where the law of necessity is, because it ain't in the law books. So the deportees took the mine companies and others to civil court, 
filing a class action lawsuit in federal court in Tucson, Simmons v. the El Paso Southwestern Railroad et al. That case was settled out of court. The mining companies crowed that we didn't, we didn't give them very much. But what's interesting to find out is that quite a few of the men who signed on to the class action lawsuit bought homes and businesses after the settlement was reached in 1920. So some justice was rendered. Anderson says some of the men did eventually return to Bisbee and were even buried in the city's cemetery. Others stayed in New Mexico or spread out, working in other mines under aliases. They picked up their lives and they went on with it. And that was one of the most interesting things to me was these were not, these were not men who suffered calamity and just fell to pieces. They were, they were tough. They, considering that 80% of them were immigrants, they'd already gone through great hardship. The story of the deportation was buried over the years, especially when it came to teaching future generations in Bisbee, like Charles Bethia and his sister. My sister graduated my, in 1971, and she went to NAU. And she was taking, I think, an Arizona history class as a freshman. And so the professor, the teacher of the class, was talking about Arizona history and the history of copper, mining, and he mentioned the story of the deportation in Bisbee, and she said, excuse me, what are you talking about? I'm from Bisbee, and he started to laugh. She said, that never happened, what are you talking about? That's not, that did not happen. And he says, if you're from Bisbee, of course you don't know that it happened. Arizona's copper industry was eventually unionized, and in the early 1980s was part of a major labor battle when unionized miners again struck against Phelps Dodge. That strike became national news when, after a five-year battle, it led to the largest mass union decertification in U.S. history. At the end of the day, this is not a story about copper. It's, it's a story about people and the way power and money affect people's lives, you know. And for those men to just have been dumped off into anonymous history is a criminal thing to me. And that's the buzz for this week. Tune in next week as we take a look at primary election results from southern Arizona and around the state. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Thanks to the Bisbee Mining and Historical Museum for use of their oral history collection. Zach Ziegler wrote and produced this episode. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer, and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.